In the 1980s, Reagan was president. Credit card debt was running wild. The Cold War was happening in a standoff between America and the Soviet Union. Our hockey team had just had a miracle on ice. Patriotism was at an all-time high. MTV was starting to become a really big deal. Cocaine use peaked. Greed became good. And people just really became blissfully ignorant. The 1980s was one hell of a decade. And that explains why Hulkamania became such a big deal. Tonight's episode is Hulkamania. How it became a phenomenon. How Cindy Lauper was involved. How it even started. How it ended. And where it is today. You don't want to miss this episode because it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm your host, El Dangeroso. And this is 21 Years, the podcast about the 80s and 90s. Tonight, we talk about Hulkamania. Hello, pop culture vultures. Welcome to 21 Years, a podcast about the 80s and 90s and the stories behind the stories you've never heard. I'm your host, El Dangeroso, and every episode we take you on a journey between the 80s and 90s on different things that are pop culture related, news story related, music, entertainment, whatnot, and we break it down and talk about the things that maybe you've never heard. And tonight's episode is going to be really fun. I say tonight because I recorded at night. So excuse me when I say tonight's episode. But this episode is going to be about Hulkamania and uh, the phenomenon that it really became and where it came from and how it became what it was and why it became what it was. As a 10-year-old, I remember going through WWF Magazine and reading different articles and I mean, all I can tell you is for those who didn't witness Hulkamania or go through it, it was like uh, real life superheroes, uh, action heroes in front of you. And the 80s was a big time for patriotism uh, because of the Cold War and consumerism was really taking off. And, you know, wrestling was one of those things that was very American. And once it hit the stride that Hulkamania took it on, Uh, Everyone took a lot of notice. It became a really huge deal in America and globally, as we'll later find out. But but that's not really all we're talking about. When we talk about Hulkamania, we're going to be talking specifically about Hulkamania. This is not a podcast that uh, gets off on being an hour or two hours long. We like to try to keep things really short and simple that you can listen to on a ride to work and enjoy and not kind of bore you with a lot of details and biographies. It's not what I do. You can go on Wikipedia and read biographies if you want to. I probably wouldn't do a great honor to people who, you know, I would be reading biographies on because I don't know anything about them personally. But I know about things that have happened in the 80s and 90s. And Hulkamania is the thing that we're going to focus on on this particular episode. So, you know, we won't be talking about... Uh, Hulk Hogan's past when he was a kid, what he did, and all this other stuff. We're just going to talk about how Hulkamania began, where Hulkamania ended, and the phenomenon it was, why we believe that it was that way, and how it kind of 
transformed and really transcendent wrestling. It's a really interesting topic to take on. So I'm really excited to do it tonight with you guys. So strap in. We're going to have a good time. And this story is really going to begin sometime around 1981. So in 1981, two years after winning the World Heavyweight Championship against Apollo Creed, Rocky Balboa had a string of 10 successful title defenses. His fame, wealth, endorsements, and celebrity profile have now increased, leading him to participate in an exhibition charity event against the World Heavyweight Wrestling Champion, Thunderlips. Thunderlips was played by a little-known wrestler at the time, Terry Bonilla, also known as Hulk Hogan who was chosen to play Thunderlips because of his intimidating stature. He was 6'7", 295 pounds, and had a 24-inch bicep. In the highly anticipated Rocky III, millions in the viewing audience were in awe of Hogan's size, strength, and charisma. Hogan was so big that three stuntmen were injured during the fight scene with Rocky, and even came close to breaking Stallone's collarbone in a scene when Stallone was thrown so hard against the corner of the ring he thought his collarbone had shattered. He was down the canvas for over 10 minutes, afraid to even move. The scene was extremely violent, with Hulk Hogan throwing the dwarf Stallone like a ragdoll 10 feet into the crowd below. Not only is Hogan strong, but he's also agile and quick in the scenes as well for his size. Hulk was a freak on the screen to millions, and his star began to rise very quickly. But Hogan was in the WWF in the early 80s prior to Rocky III. He was beginning to make leave way at becoming one of the largest villain characters in the WWF. That's right, Hulk Hogan, America's hero, was a villain, and he was already in the WWF before Rocky III. But that's before he was fired. And he was fired because of Rocky III. In an ironic twist, the man who ran the WWF at the time was Vince McMahon Sr. And he didn't think Hogan should do a movie. To him, Hogan was becoming a top-tier bad guy in the WWF at the time, and he generated lots of money. Wrestlers weren't allowed to take time off, and back then, Hogan was given a choice. Stay and wrestle as the WWF's next upcoming big bad guy, or be fired and do Rocky III. Hogan chose Rocky III. Hulk Hogan slipped through the WWF's fingers and went on to shoot the scene in Rocky III, gaining incredible exposure from millions of non-wrestling moviegoers. Before the movie premiered, Hulk Hogan needed work, though, and with the bridge burned now with the WWF, he wrestled for a promotion called AWA, which was at the time the main wrestling staple for the Midwest. AWA was a big deal, and they signed Hulk Hogan, who was now becoming a large deal due to Rocky III premiering. Hogan's star began to skyrocket as he gained popularity. Soon Hulk was doing interviews, getting endorsement deals, and using his size and charisma, traversing the wrestling world and spilling over into the world of pop culture. Hogan became a fan favorite in AWA and began to sell out arenas everywhere and was primed to win a title. There was only one problem. The guy who ran the AWA didn't think that Hogan would actually be a good champion. In fact, he did everything he could to keep Hogan from winning the championship. Not only did this frustrate Hogan, but it also frustrated the fans who wanted to see their new hero as a champion. Shady things were going down on the AWA, and Hogan wasn't happy, and as fate would have it, the WWF was changing hands. Vince McMahon Sr. had sold his WWF promotion to his son, Vince McMahon Jr., and Jr., being a bit more foreseeable than his father, realized Hulk Hogan could be used to transform the WWF from a New York territory to a national promotion, something that the other territories frowned upon. Vince Jr. convinced Hulk to jump ship back to WWF and become its champion. 
Hogan agreed and sent AWA a telegram that simply said, I'm not coming back. Needless to say, this move destroyed the AWA as they never ever were able to regain footing again. They lost Hogan and in 1991 finally closed its doors after financial hardships. Hulkamania had a lot of effects we're going to discuss, but one of the big ones early on was absolutely dismantling what was called the territory system. Back many years ago, wrestling was actually territories. In the 80s, it was kind of like a mob family that ran areas of the country. There are many different territories, but to make this simple, we will just concentrate on the big ones, which was WWF in New York, WCW, who was controlled in the South, WCCW in Texas, and finally AWA, which was in the Midwest. However, there were a total of at least 12 territories, which all worked together using a board, and they all came together and discussed new champions and rosters and how storylines would go. This system ran for many years successfully. The members from each territory would meet and discuss the goings-on of all the territories. But now that Vince Jr. had plans to go national, this obviously upset the status quo the other owners had enjoyed. Also causing a bit of an uproar was Jr.'s pursuit of the hottest name in wrestling from another major territory. Wrestling was now put on notice that things were going to change. The WWF had one thing all the other territories didn't have, and that was Madison Square Garden. It gave the WWF's New York Territory more credibility than the others to put on wrestling matches in historic venues. Vince Jr. felt that he had a huge star in Hogan, and the first thing he needed to do was make Hogan strong immediately. So he put a match together with a new young Hulk Hogan against a wrestler by the name of the Iron Sheik. All wrestlers have a finishing move, a move that is their signature. The more unique, the more recognizable. The Iron Sheik had one called the Camel Clutch, and it truly looked painful. Sheik would sit on the back of an opponent that was face down, interlock his hands under their chin, and lean back. No one had ever broken the Camel Clutch, and Sheik was actually very credible. He was a real tough guy. He worked as a bodyguard to a Shah in Iran and was a gold medalist in Greco-Roman wrestling, later becoming an Olympic wrestling coach. The Iron Sheik, in other words, was extremely, extremely legit. He was strong, quick, smart, and at this moment, he was the WWF heavyweight champion. On January 23rd in 1984, five minutes into their match, the Iron Sheik had Hulk Hogan locked into his famous camel clutch. Hogan powered to his feet, with Sheik still on his back. He then rammed him backwards into the turnbuckles. Iron Sheik went down on his back. Hogan hit the ropes, came down with his atomic leg drop, Hogan's own signature move, then covered Sheik for the pin, and won the championship. This moment is generally considered the beginning of Hulkamania. Years later, it would be revealed by the Iron Sheik that the owner of the AWA at the time of Hulk's leaving, Vern Gagne, had offered him $100,000 to not only break Hogan's leg in the match, but to bring the WWF title to the AWA. The Iron Sheik knew it was in his best interest to decline the offer because there was no way that the wrestlers in the back or Vince McMahon Jr. himself would let Iron Sheik leave with the title or with Hogan's leg broken. Hulk Hogan got a ton of street cred after being the first wrestler to ever escape the camel clutch. A southern working class hero in the eyes of his fans, Hogan advised young Hulkamaniacs to say their prayers, take their vitamins, and to believe in themselves. On top of Hogan's huge stature, movie fame, and now legitimate championship, he was actually really great in wrestling interviews as well. Overnight, Hogan went from the mean, terrible Thunderlips of Rocky III to every kid's hero. But this is only the beginning. 
and it took a little help from a singer named Cindy Lauper, an actor named Mr. T, to really push Hogan over on the entire globe to have international fame. Vince Jr. had gambled, and it paid off big. He now had the world's largest wrestling star on contract, which allowed the WWF to dwarf the other territories. But he was also putting a plan together to mercilessly destroy the other territories, and he was going to use Hulk Hogan with celebrities to get it done. He was only a year away from his total domination and his plan for the wrestling business. Vince Jr. had always had a dream of creating a Super Bowl for wrestling, but he never felt he could quite sell it without the push of a huge star. He had Hogan now, but would Hogan be enough to carry this once-a-year huge wrestling event? Just to make sure, Vince Jr. needed Hulk Hogan intertwined in a dramatic storyline with an arch enemy. He also needed some star power to sell it. Enter Cindy Lauper. Cindy Lauper at the time was climbing up the charts with her songs Girls Just Want to Have Fun, She Bop, All Through the Night, and soon-to-be mega-hit Time After Time. It was a chance encounter on a plane from Puerto Rico where Lauper shared a plane with a wrestling manager by the name of Captain Lou Albano. A wrestling manager like Albano was often paired up with wrestlers that might not be so good in promotional interviews. Albano was unique for having rubber bands stuck to his face and beard and being extremely loud. Lopper's boyfriend at the time was a huge wrestling fan and recognized Captain Albano and started up a conversation on the plane. In the end, it was agreed that he would do something with Cindy Lopper, and in return, Cindy Lopper would do something with Albano and the WWF. When it came time to film the video for Girls Just Want to Have Fun, that agreement was honored as Captain Albano was asked by Cindy Lopper's boyfriend and manager to play the role of Cindy's father in the video. The video, of course, was a huge hit on MTV, adding exposure to the WWF as viewers wondered who the weird guy was that had rubber bands stuck to his face and beard. McMahon caught on to this and began to cross-promote with MTV, which aired two wrestling specials. The first one was Brawl to End It All, aired on July 23, 1984, in which a match from a live Madison Square Garden broadcast was shown on MTV. Wendy Richter, a female wrestler, allied with Cindy Lauper. She defeated the fabulous Moolah backed by Lou Albano, to win the WWF's Women's Championship. The second promotion was The War to Settle the Score, which aired on February 18, 1985. Lily and Kai, accompanied by Moolah, defeated Richter, once again accompanied by Lopper, to win the Women's Championship. Once MTV and Cindy Lopper were a part of the cross-promotion with WWF, the term Rock and Wrestling Connection was coined. It described a period of time where the cooperation of cross-promotion between WWF and elements of the music industry existed. Cindy Lopper helped push the WWF even more into mainstream popularity by recording a song for a movie. The movie was The Goonies, and the song was Goonies Are Good Enough, became a major hit, and in the video for Goonies Are Good Enough, you can see all types of wrestling personalities. Roddy Roddy Piper, the Iron Sheik, of course Captain Lou Albano, and at the end of the video, Andre the Giant, who comes in to save the day. So not only was the WWF now connected with a cross-promotion with MTV and Cindy Lauper, but it also had crossed another level into movies by now joining forces with Spielberg's executively produced and written movie, The Goonies. With the early stages of Hulkamania churning, the chance encounter Albano had with pop star Cindy Lauper, the cross-promotions with MTV, Vince Jr.'s ability to sell WrestleMania was already in the works. It was a perfect storm. It was only going to get bigger. That's right, it got bigger from here because McMahon needed Hulk to fight an archenemy. 
someone who could carry themselves as a dirty cheating heel, and he found himself a wrestler known as Rowdy Roddy Piper, who himself was beginning to experience popularity from the attention Hulkamania was bringing to the WWF. Although he was Canadian because of his Scottish heritage, he was billed as coming from Glasgow, Scotland, and was known for his signature kilt and bagpipe entrance music. Piper earned his nicknames Rowdy and Hot Rod by displaying his trademark Scottish short temper, spontaneity, and quick wit. According to the Daily Telegraph, he is considered by many to be the greatest villain wrestler ever. In the months leading up to the first WrestleMania, Rowdy Rowdy Piper began a talk show segment on WWF television entitled Piper's Pit. On one episode, he actually hit Jimmy Snook over the head with the actual coconut, leading to a feud between the two men. As part of the storyline, Piper spoke out against the rock and wrestling connection, which led to a confrontation with Hulk Hogan. Hogan now had a storyline with Batty Rowdy Piper, who actually did truly hate the rock and wrestling connection in real life. He despised Lopper being involved with the promotion. In fact, Piper hated the celebrity spectacle that WrestleMania was creating completely. Roddy was simply a very old school wrestler. He wanted the promotion to stay to its roots. He only wanted to work with other wrestlers, and celebrities to him ruined the business. One of the problems with the storyline between Hulk Hogan and Roddy was that Roddy had an advantage on Hulk Hogan. He had a stable of wrestlers watching his back, and Hogan was the new guy in the WWF. This posed an issue for their rivalry to really blossom for WrestleMania. Hogan kind of needed his own tag partner, someone to watch his back too. From 1982 to 1985, one of the biggest names on TV was a man by the name of Mr. T. Mr. T was on a popular TV show at the time called The A-Team, an action show based around a couple of mercenaries for hire, and kids loved it. He also had his own action figures, serial, and cartoon. His mohawk, tough demeanor, and excessive amounts of gold jewelry, along with his involvement with the Just Say No campaign, made him a huge star. And when Hulk Hogan needed a partner, who was there for him? Mr. T. So with Lopper and Mr. T in tow, Hogan and the WWF set off to create the biggest night in wrestling history. So in February 1985, Hogan and Piper faced each other at the war to settle the score, where Hogan won by disqualification after interference by Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff and Mr. T. Their ongoing feud led to their match at WrestleMania. Things were finally in place for WrestleMania 1, and on March 31, 1985 at Madison Square Garden in New York City, the attendance for the event was 19,121 people. The event was seen by over 1 million viewers through closed-circuit television, making it the largest pay-per-view showing of a wrestling event on closed-circuit television in the United States at the time. The show consisted of nine professional wrestling matches. In the main event, Hulk Hogan and Mr. T defeated Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff and Roddy Piper. Piper recalled during the match that he had to keep Mr. T busy to cover Mr. T's lack of wrestling ability from being seen by the fans. From this situation, Piper and Mr. T's real-life relationship became very hostile, leading to the inevitable conclusion that they would be put into a feud with one another on screen. Piper faced Mr. T in a boxing match in WrestleMania II in 1986, which Piper lost by disqualification after he got upset with Mr. T for missing a punch he should have made and angrily body-slamming Mr. T in a harsh fashion. The relationship has been strained ever since. Also, Wendy Richter, accompanied by her manager, Cindy Lauper, defeated Lillian Kai to win the WWF Women's Championship, and Akila Koloff and the Iron Sheik defeated the U.S. Express to win the WWF Tag Team Championship. Other celebrity guests included former heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali as a referee, baseball manager Billy Martin as a ring announcer, and musician-actor Liberace as a timekeeper. 
The event was hugely successful, and in attendance was anyone and everyone who wanted to be seen. The flame of Hulkamania turned into an explosion overnight. For the first time, everyone knew who Hulk Hogan was. My mom, my dad, my friends, teachers, newscasters, everyone. And now Hulkamania was being featured in the news, on talk shows, and newspapers, late-night talk shows, literally everywhere. Hogan was even featured on the cover of a TV guide in Sports Illustrated magazine. A toy line was launched, the Hulk Hogan weight bench was introduced, posters, Hulkamania t-shirts, ice cream bars, you name it. The WWF marketed it, and it sold like hotcakes. Hulkamania gave the WWF the ability to negotiate TV programming, future WrestleManias, and TV specials. Even records were recorded where wrestlers sang songs sold significantly well. It also gave other wrestlers the ability for better paydays. Stars like Randy Savage and Jake the Snake were now part of major storylines on TV time. Roddy Piper got a movie deal for They Live. A Saturday morning cartoon was put together called Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling, which pitched Hogan and one half of the WWF good guy roster against Roddy Piper, the Iron Sheik, and their stable of bad guys. Hogan also filmed a movie called No Holds Barred, which, by the way, my wife was in. That's right. When she was young, she took up a little bit of an acting gig, and one of the jobs that she got was working on the set for No Holds Barred. And she's actually in a scene. It's a scene where the crowd's around Hulk Hogan and the helicopter's landing and um, Zeus is getting out of the helicopter and everything. She's actually right there, kind of close to Hulk Hogan, her and her sister. So that's kind of a cool little thing. But uh, yeah, she was actually in No Holds Barred. Uh, But that signaled the end of Hogan's strong run when the movie was made a bit of a joke at the end. And Hulkamania began to tire in the early 90s where it kind of started to run out of steam. Fans were beginning to feel the antics of Hogan's run and impossible comebacks were getting old. And what you have to understand is that this time became kind of like the same old thing uh, with Hulk Hogan where he comes in, takes on a big bad guy. um, Something happens, they cheat. Something happens to keep Hogan down or they get a leg up on Hogan, and he's you think he's going to get defeated, then all of a sudden he gets his second wind. You know, his arms start flailing around, and he stands up, and he does the no, no, no. Then he blocks a punch, and all of a sudden he's doing his signature leg drop. And once it was a, a popular finisher, uh, it was beginning to get mocked as younger, more athletic wrestlers were doing more complicated moves. And McMahon was running out of ideas, and soon the matches became the same old matches fan had seen numerous times. Then something worse even happened. We saw the decline of Hulkamania when the WWF was caught up in a steroid scandal. The stories began to come out that Hogan was one of the wrestlers who abused them the most. Hogan made a mistake appearing on an episode of the Arsenio Hall show to deny these allegations. And I want to insert here, one of the episodes that I have planned is what happened to the Arsenio Hall show. So just keep, keep that in your notes in your brain that we're going to go back to that at some point. But due to intense public scrutiny, Hogan took a leave of absence from the company. Macho Man Randy Savage would later go on record to burn Hogan publicly for not just admitting the truth and being honest with people that he did take steroids. In reality, Hogan's young audience was 10 years older now, and they were old enough to realize the obvious. Hogan and everyone else in the WWF were taking massive amounts of steroids. The man preaching to us about saying our prayers, working hard, and taking our vitamins had himself betrayed his own code of ethics. In 1993, McMahon was charged by the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern Districts of New York with routinely obtaining anabolic steroids for a stable of strongmen and employing a shady Pennsylvania doctor to do so. The doctor would drop off signed prescription pads to ensure regular shipments of juice to then-WWF headquarters at Titan Towers in Sanford, Connecticut. 
The trial ended with a mishmash of sloppy legal errors and underwhelming witness testimony, including that of an uncommonly subdued Hulk Hogan, securing McMahon's acquittal on all charges. But once things began to quiet down, a much smaller Hulk Hogan returned to the WCW in 1994. The much smaller physique only validated the rumors that Hogan had indeed abused steroids, and by the end of 1993, Hulkamania was all but a whisper. Hulk's contract was ending, and there wasn't a place anymore for Hogan in the WWF, which had gone much younger. New stars were coming along like Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Gone from the WWF were Hogan's old partners and friends. Hogan most certainly found a new life and a new environment in 1994 with a struggling promotion that was still alive and huge in the South thanks to Ted Turner and TBS wanting to lose money on the product. But his hokey gimmick had worn thin by then. No one was actually thrilled to see Hogan yet again be the ultimate good guy in yellow and red. The only obvious play was to forever end Hulkamania and for Hogan to be talked into doing the impossible, becoming Hollywood Hulk Hogan and taking on a bad guy persona. Into the box went the yellow and red after 10 years, and the new color adorned was simply black. He played a wrestler fed up with being the nice guy, a guy fed up with being the hero, and it actually worked extremely well. Although he was part of a later phenomenon known as the New World Order of Wrestling, where now storylines cross with scripted behind-the-scenes reality-style television, Hogan would no longer really be able to return to Hulkamania fully. Hulkamania changed everything in 1983. The wrestling promotion and the wrestling world had changed from a kid's fantasy to watching superheroes and Greek gods battle it out between ring posts to adults, mothers, fathers, babysitters, teachers, everyone knowing about the WWF and knowing who Hulk Hogan was. It really put wrestling on the map. And dare I say that Hulk Hogan, when you look back, is as large, if not larger, than Michael Jordan or Mike Tyson or Tiger Woods. In fact, I would compare him a little bit to Tiger Woods and the fact that he changed what the sport was in such a way that it changed it for everyone that was involved. Much like Tiger Woods, more money became available to wrestlers in the WWF and in wrestling in general, and big contracts began to happen. So wrestlers were able to make a decent amount of money to live on for all the traveling and all the injuries they took on. They kind of finally had gotten their just due for the things that they had to go through in the sport. And I would say that the comment about him being bigger than, say, a Michael Jordan or Mike Tyson is relevant. And and I'll tell you why I think it's relevant. It's relevant because Hulk Hogan actually put a sport or a sports entertainment industry on the map. With Michael Jordan, the NBA was going to go on whether Michael Jordan ever showed up on the, on the court or not. Now, don't get me wrong. Michael Jordan is incredible. Uh, Mike Tyson is incredible. But boxing would have gone on probably without Mike Tyson in some way. And basketball would have gone on without Jordan in some way. Wrestling, however, probably doesn't go on the way that it has or with the popularity it has now, even so many years later, without Hulk Hogan, without Hulkamania. That's how large Hulkamania was to people in that era. It's how big it is now and the ripple effects to people who enjoy wrestling now. I mean, you think about stars like John Cena and The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Now it's normal for people to know wrestlers even though they don't watch wrestling. That was extremely uncommon before Hulk Hogan came along. That's a change in an entire industry, an entire entertainment industry, entire sport that makes Hulk Hogan and Hulkamania 
that special. There's absolutely nothing that we've seen like it since. And Hulk Hogan completely carried an industry on his back. Once Hulkamania took over, and like we said, it kind of takes over right around WrestleMania 1. It kind of solidifies itself, and it catches fire, and it goes on blazing. And he's all over late-night TV. He's all over interviews everywhere. And uh, normal magazines are carrying articles about him and interviews with him. And he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And ESPN is talking about Hulk Hogan. I mean... These things are happening, and because they're happening, the WWF is becoming extremely popular. Now, like we said before, all this rides on the unique friendship between Cindy Lauper and Captain Lou Albano. We can't forget Mr. T and his effect on the, on the WWF as well. I mean, between Cindy Lauper and Mr. T and uh, all these things that are happening in, in WrestleMania 1, Hulkamania begins to really hit the stratosphere. And wrestling in general hits the stratosphere. And it gets this second life that's amazing that goes on and on and on. And kids around the world are absolutely enamored with Hulk Hogan and other wrestlers at this point. And the marketing and how things get pushed. I mean, you think about wrestling and how it's able to be pushed upon children and toys, products, all these things. I mean, it, it's billions of billions of dollars that are being that are being exchanged here for the WWF over a popular singer and Cyndi Lauper a popular actor in Mr. T, and a popular wrestler in Hulk Hogan, who just simply was in a movie, Rocky Three. So all of these things are just amazing powder kegs that come together and explode with MTV and the cross promotions. So when you have the discussion, why was Hulkamania such a big deal? It was a big deal because people at the time kind of lived in this ignorance is bliss attitude. There's so many things that were going on, so many great things that were going on too. And people just liked escape in the 80s, right? They liked to escape in the 80s. And by escaping, they turned to wrestling, they turned to music, and they turned to TV. And on those screens and on those radio dials were Hulk Hogan, Mr. T, and Cyndi Lauper. Cyndi Lauper had a huge impact on Hulkamania, which is amazing to me. Makes this story so great to tell. And Mr. T had his impact as well. But I would say Cindy Lauper had the greatest impact on making Hulkamania what it was. Just this pop singer who was basically the last person you would think would be involved in this is actually pretty responsible for Hulkamania. So it's a pretty amazing spectacle to me. It's a great story. It's a lot of fun. Now, some of this stuff we'll go back and we'll cover again. You know, I'd like to do something on the you know, steroid scandal a little bit down the road. I'd like to do something, like I said, on the Arsenio Hall show and where it went and how it disappeared because it was so popular. A lot of us don't know whatever happened to the uh, Arsenio Hall show, so it'll be a fun discussion for us to take on and investigate. And that's what we do here. We don't just talk about the things you already know. We investigate the things you remember. And we tell the stories behind the stories. So enjoy it. Have fun. Go back and reminisce and think about the good times when you were young. And if you're a young person going back to experience this, I hope this show helps. As always, we appreciate you guys so much. Please don't forget uh, to check us, out, check us out on Podbean. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Play, Pandora, all that good stuff. But I'm also happy to announce that we're going to be on Facebook. So go check us out. 21 Years uh, podcast about the 80s and 90s is going to be on Facebook. We're going to share episodes there. We're going to talk about upcoming uh, topics that we possibly might do. You guys can get involved with that. The podcast is growing tremendously. 
And I want to thank you all for continuing to listen and, and be patient. I mean, this week I kind of had to deal with a little bit of a COVID issue and I didn't get COVID. Relax. You're not going to catch it from me talking on the mic here. But I did get my second COVID shot. And I got to be honest with you, although I'm glad that I got vaccinated, no complaints about that. It's just the second shot wore me down. And I just really couldn't get my bearings for a couple of days. And so we kind of got a little bit of distance between episodes. So I apologize for that. But we're back on. We're back in the saddle again. We're ready to roll and ride and and do some new topics for you guys. So content is king. And we're going to try to put a lot of content out there. But it counts on you guys going to Facebook and doing that. And like I said in one of the earlier episodes, the reason for this podcast is to leave something behind for my kids. I've got two sons, and uh, I hope down the road, as the old man is long gone and they've started their own families, hopefully not too soon, but as they start their own families and they're reminiscing about old you know, granddad or pop or dad or whatever, that they're going to go back and listen to these episodes that you get to listen to and share my experience with the rest of the family. So it means a lot to me that you guys support this and allow me to do this. I'm not asking for anything from you other than support and other for your, other than for you to share. Go visit the Facebook page. Be a part of the family. It's a big deal for me. It matters because this fuels something for the future for my kids just to have something to hear dad say, I love you boys. So with that, I love you boys. I love you. And I appreciate you for listening. This is the 21 Years Podcast, a podcast about the 80s and 90s. Next week, we'll be back with something a lot of fun for you. Please, please keep listening, subscribe, go to Facebook, be a part of it. Thanks, everybody. And don't forget, tell your friends. Have a great one. This has been the 21 Years Podcast. I'm El Dangeroso. Good night. Standing